This is Agent Provocateur with Alan Walsh and Adam Wilde. Our guest this week is an Emmy Award-winning sportscaster, television producer, broadcaster, podcaster, and the author of one of my favorite books of all time, Evolve or Die, (laughs) Hard-Won Lessons of a Hockey Life. Uh, from longtime executive producer of Hockey Net in Canada. We've all seen him in the past on Rogers Sportsnet and as the legendary Bob McCown's co-host amongst many other places we've seen him. Let's give a big welcome to John Shannon. Good golf claps, John. Golf claps. I, I, I got I to gotta, uh, tell you, I've, I've never had an applause for being on the air, period. So this is quite an honor. <laughs> yeah, usually, be it's the, the first Roman Adam. Usually, it's the Roman thumbs down that I get more more often than not. So. <laughs> same, same. <laughs> well, I wanted to welcome everybody to the show, and mm-hmm. uh, I wanted to jump right in and start talking to John uh, about his incredible life in hockey, uh, both. Uh, behind the scenes and in front of the camera. And I've always been fascinated, John, with how people got their start uh, in in what they eventually ended up doing in their professional life. So you give us a little breakdown on how you broke into the business? Well, um, you know, I, I grew up in a really small town in the interior of British Columbia, and I knew probably by the age of 12, that I wanted to be in broadcasting. Um, there was no doubt. I mean, my mom and dad wanted me to be a lawyer. They're trouble, lawyers. Uh, and so well aware. I, I, well aware. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know what they say, you know, when, when you find a, a, a lawyer at the bottom of the sea, you know how to describe that, right? It's a start. Um, so, um, but... So I, I, at 12 years old, I, I knew that I, I wanted to be, I, I wanted to be on the air. I, I wanted to be a broadcaster. I was in love with radio. I still am in love with radio. Uh, television was fun to watch and, and to learn how to do television. So I went to university to, to learn to be a broadcasting person and got derailed for 35 years on being an announcer because uh, the guys at Hockey Night in Canada hijacked me to become a production person. Uh, and uh, after I was, you know, the day after I wrote my final exam at what was then Ryerson in Toronto, I was on a plane to Madison Square Garden in New York. And at the age of 20, was in the midst of a production team of doing a Toronto Maple Leaf New York Ranger game. And so uh, it, it, it started that way. And I, um, I, I finally, I got my way, Adam. Uh, in 2009, uh, when after I left the National Hockey League office, uh, my friends at Sportsnet uh, brought me aboard as a as an insider, someone who could tell stories about not necessarily players, uh, but how the executive office works in 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 the in the league. I had been in board of governors meetings, I'd been in general managers meetings, so I could give an angle that not many people on television would do. Uh, Yes, but you also spent uh, so many years of your storied career behind the camera. Mm -hmm. Uh, What motivated you to want to transition at fairly 
later stage of your very long career. That's very to, delicate, to, Alan. To, to <laughs> be in front of the camera. Well, I had always wanted to be in front of the camera. Uh, and uh, anybody that worked on a production that I was behind the scenes on always knew that I wanted their job. <laughs> they, 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 they knew that I was a frustrated broadcaster. Um, but I, but early on in my career, I had a, a choice. Um, did I want to be an announcer or did I want to be the boss? Uh, and, you know, by the age of 22, I decided I'd rather be the boss. <laughs> I'd rather be telling people what to say rather than doing the saying. So it, it, it was a natural progression for me to become a producer. It was, and, and to be an organizer. I've always been an organizer all my life from the, you know, the, the tackle football games every Sunday night in the backyard. And, and, uh, you know, I, one summer I created my own lacrosse league in my hometown and in, in, in the, uh, in, in our, in our brand new arena and, and bought a hundred sticks and sold the hundred sticks to friends so that we could actually have a lacrosse league. I was always an organizer. So becoming a producer was easy. Um, and it also gave you the realization that that's truly where the power is in, in television and in production was behind the scenes, not the guys on camera. Well, for years, you were the executive producer of hockey night in Canada and uh, you were there for a lot of hockey, and a lot of amazing things have happened over the course of that time. Tell us a little bit about uh, your experience at Hockey Night in Canada, what that meant to you, and, uh, and, and some of the, maybe you have one or two stories that stick out in your mind that have never been told before. <laughs> well, um, in, the, in the end, between being a producer and being uh, the executive producer, I was probably at Hockey Night 19 years. Um, uh, it, they weren't all at once. I, I, it wasn't 19 consecutive years. You know, not many of us. Uh, I felt at one point I was the Billy Martin of, of uh, television hockey because I kept getting fired and brought back. <laughs> um, in, in, you know, in, in times where Hockey Night was, was morphing itself, uh, to be the executive producer of Hockey Night in Canada, in, in my mind, uh, was the greatest job in television production in Canada. Um, it was a, a powerful position. Yeah. It was one where we created relationships with the clubs, with the, with the players union, with the league office. And in many ways, as much as we were partners, we were also the, the guardians. We, 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 took a step aside and said, that's not good for the game in Canada. That's, we were, we were, we were the gatekeepers. Uh, and that's how I viewed it. And, and we were given an opportunity through the nineties, Alan. Um, you know, we, we, we were part of putting a double header on hockey night in Canada, not just a single game. Uh, we did a national pregame show. We did a national postgame show, hockey day in Canada. Uh, there are, you know, the satellite hot stove. There are lots of different aspects of what really exists in some form or manner of Hockey Night in Canada in 2023 that were a blueprint that we designed in the early 90s. And that's something that I'm very proud of. It, 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 there is something special about those four simple words uh, to most Canadians. Uh, and, and being a kid, as I talked about growing up in a small town, I think they meant more in rural Canada. I think they meant more in Western Canada than at times they did in some of the big cities. 
And that's what made me so proud about it. Let me let me just share with you something, and I don't know if I've ever showed it with you before, but Saturday night to me, growing up as a kid, was hockey night in Canada, and uh, I would have I would have dinner. Um, I would go down into the basement of our house where we had the biggest TV, um, and it looked like one of those old TVs from the nineteen seventies. And uh, I would wait a whole for twelve inches, eh? <laughs> and I would I would wait for the iconic Hockey Night in Canada theme, which is the ringtone to this day on my cell phone. And I would wait for Hockey Night in Canada, Danny Gallivan, Dick Irvin, uh, the Baby Blue Blazers, and yeah. there was just nothing like it. I waited the whole week to be able to watch that show. And that wasn't just my experience, John, as you well know, that was the experience of kids and families and mothers and fathers and grandfathers, uh, literally, as they said in the op, from coast to coast, right? And you talked about such a powerful position. It certainly was powerful but to me it was cultural mm -hmm. it was one of the things that defined canada and 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 it's it's apropos that the word canada was in hockey night in canada because you know i i i've sat with many of the legends in the nhl and when we talk about hockey night in canada when they were kids and they watched it, um, you, you know, waxing nostalgic. We get chills. I could see them sometimes get emotional. It holds a very special place in our hearts. Uh, oh, did, you, oh, hey, listen, did you realize, Alan, did you realize uh, it at the time that that's what was going on? Absolutely. Uh, we, you know, I, I got indoctrinated into the Hockey Night family in the uh, mid to late 70s. Uh, starting as a $10 a game runner uh, at Maple Leaf Gardens. Um, and I, I, the money, the $10 is a lot of money, Adam. $10 oh, is a I, lot of money. I don't doubt it. That's good money. That's good <laughs> um, money. <laughs> but I, but, I, but I, I coveted my, my baby blue blazer more than I did my $10. Uh, that was part of the magic of being around it. Um, and to be able to walk in the bowels of Maple Leaf Gardens and the Montreal Forum and the Pacific Coliseum because uh, there was only three Canadian teams in the NHL at that point, uh, to be able to do that and then to walk around every NHL rink during the Stanley Cup playoffs uh, proudly wearing that uniform um, like we were the third team in every rink. We were the third team in every rink. Uh, and it, it, it was exciting. It was, I mean, lots of people thought we were, we were too egocentric about it. But we were so bloody proud. We were so thrilled to be part of that. I had, you know, you talked about Danny and Dick. I got to work with Danny and Dick a lot. Uh, Dick is still uh, one of my great friends to this day. Uh, I got to befriend Dave Hodge. Uh, you know, I, I, I worked for the great Ralph Mellenby, who got his cut at Hockey Night in Montreal, uh, Alan. And, and those people became mentors. They became friends. 
Um, they became associates, and every once in a while, I became their boss, uh, <laughs> which is which was which was truly amazing to me through that. But and one and one of the great thrills for me was a lot of times when we traveled, we'd fly home Sunday after the after the Saturday night show, and you'd get on an airplane and sit in your seat, and then you'd overhear the conversation of the two people behind you. Hey, did you watch hockey night last night? Hey, did you see uh, did you see what Grape said last night? Uh, and that was where you understood the impact of what Saturday night hockey meant to most Canadians. Yeah. Yeah. Adam. Well, John, I'm, I'm listening to this and I want to go back to, uh, mid to late seventies, John Shannon, $10 mm -hmm. a game, blue blazer, uh, walking through, you know, the, the Montreal Forum, Maple Leaf Gardens. Um, and some of those legendary hosts you talk about, right? Uh, those guys must have had a treasure trove of information and and um, wisdom that they passed on to you when you were a young man. Can you remember a story uh, where, or, or can you remember a, a particular thing that one of them passed along that kind of stuck with you your entire career? You, you know, the, the interesting thing about it was that uh, Hockey Night was going through a, a, a rather interesting time on and off the air. Um, the game was changing. Television was changing. Um, that's why I got an opportunity to be involved, was that it was growing leaps and bounds. The four new teams were coming in in 1979. Um, and you could see there was a, a need for someone like me w within this group. So Dave Hodge, who's still one of my greatest friends to this day, uh, two stories come to mind. The, the first one is um, about week three of my tenure as a $10 a game guy, I, I walked into Brian McFarland at the for, at the uh, at Maple Leaf Gardens and said, uh, Mr. McFarland, I've, I've, I've done some research and I've put them on recipe cards. So I gave him 10 recipe cards with three statistical notes on every recipe card. Uh, and Brian looked at it, and, and I, I say this, you know, without criticizing Brian, but that was more research than Brian had done on the game in the last two years. <laughs> so, because you, you knew the game was changing. You knew how we broadcast the games was changing, and so information was power. So the following week, I came back to Brian with 10 more cards with information, updated information. And this is before computers and statistics were available on a daily basis. I had to cut the newspaper out and find all the, the clippings and, and, and all the stats of all the, goal, all the players on a daily basis. So the third week comes and Hodge walks in and sees me give McFarland the cards. And he says, what are you doing there? I says, well, I'm giving Brian research. He says, I want it too. So now... <laughs> <laughs> now I, I've got I've got my recipe cards. Now I'm under pressure. I have to deliver recipe cards every week because the first three weeks were kind of voluntary, but now I have to deliver it on a regular basis. And hockey nights, not in any position. I had to go to to the local uh, Kinkos and and photocopy it myself and pay for the photocopying. So I was down to eight dollars <laughs> a night because it cost me two bucks to do the photocopy. So that's so that's the one, and that's really how I got started as being someone that's full of information and organized, and and that gave me my 
my one up on uh, lots of other people. The other one was I started as a young producer and Hodge is now the host and I'm the producer. And I, I do an organized lineup of the show. And at the bottom of the second intermission, I leave a blank. Like, I don't know what we're going to do. And I leave a blank on the, on the script, which basically told Dave Hodge that I had not been able to plan two full intermissions. <laughs> so, and he came, so he came to me at that point and said, here's what we're doing in that bottom segment. And I didn't have the balls to say, well, no, Dave, I'm the producer. You know, we're going to do what I do. But I hadn't planned it. And, and he, I opened, I opened that door a little bit of a crack and he drove a Sherman tank right through the middle of it. And, um, and from that moment on, it, it taught me, Adam, that if I was going to be a producer, I bloody well better be prepared for every situation. And never, ever again in the 35 or 36 years that I was a producer, was there ever a blank on my script? <laughs> For, so any announcer could come in and say, hey, kid, you're not prepared. You better do it my way. John, can you take us inside a control room for, uh, for a hockey broadcast? Somebody once compared it to being inside of a submarine. Uh, can, can you tell us um, what it's like? Take everybody into it. Visualize it as best as you can for us. Well, I, I think it's a combination of two things. I think the submarine comparison's fair uh, <laughs> because it's a, it, they, they, in those days they were much smaller than they are now. They're a little more luxurious now. But I think it's a combination of a submarine and an air traffic controller because what you have in front of you is not just a single monitor or a single periscope looking at things. You're looking at a wall of monitors with multiple cameras, multiple rebate machines, multiple graphics situations. So... You, you better be able to carry on four or five conversations and land four or five airplanes at the same time you're in a very close confine with the guy sitting beside you. Uh, you know, it's the classic case. You're going to hear six voices in your ears because you're going to hear the, the, the director talking. You're going to hear the audio guy talking. You're going to hear the replay source guys talking. Uh, and you still have to make sense. And you still have to be able to understand that uh, there's a story to be told, and you have to listen to the announcers on top of that, which will appear on a speaker somewhere else in the control room. So you, you, the word multitask is one that is almost inappropriate. It's probably <laughs> double multitasking when you sit in the control room and understand how do we get this thing done without having people yell louder than the next guy around you. And that's that's part of the, the, the madness that is a TV mobile. The ability to watch four or five screens at the same time and understand that each screen will give you another angle and another opportunity to tell a simple story. So it's, it's once you are in game mode, and I, I'll, just as an aside, once you're in a game mode, you are wired for three hours. You are in mode for three straight hours. Uh, early in the 80s, and I was with Kevin Lowe on the weekend, and we got talking about this. Um, we would we would uh, have players from the, the teams that we were covering, Edmonton and Calgary particularly, that if they weren't playing, if they were injured, they would actually come to the TV mobile and watch the game because it was as close as they could get to the adrenaline rush of sitting on the bench. And the energy that was put out in the, in the TV mobile was almost like that of being a player. The difference for a lot of people is 
When you're a player, you play 22 minutes. Mm-hmm. When you're a television producer, you're playing for all 60. And so you, you, never, you never have that chance to take the breather. And that, to me, was one of the reasons I loved producing, was that it, the amount of energy and the ability to tell stories was so much fun when you were on a roll. So Hockey Night in Canada uh, developed over the years some iconic segments uh, that in and of themselves became uh, uh, the story. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of them, of course, was Coach's Corner, but another one you had mentioned was Satellite Hot Stove. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. uh, I, I, I miss Hot Stove. Uh, I, I <laughs> the commissioner looked, doesn't. I look forward to it. <laughs> I look forward to it every single week. Uh, talk to us about hot, how Hot Stove developed and uh, and why you think we don't have it anymore? Well, I, I know why we don't have it anymore because I, I do think that the I don't think that the commissioner enjoyed it because it was it got to be too controversial. It got to be too inside, it, and it and and particularly where we were in times through the '90s and after I left and into the 2000s when we were you know dealing with labor issues, it became a it became quite a, a, a lightning rod for a lot of stories. You mean lockouts? So, lockouts. Well, no, I worked at the league for a while. We called them work stoppages. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, you know, hey, the, you, when you look through the prism, Alan, when you look through the prism, the angle goes differently in certain parts. So, <laughs> so the, the, fascinating, the fascinating thing about the hot stove was um, two things. I, all the years that I traveled, I used to love going to Boston. Uh, and on a Sunday morning, I'd open up the Boston Globe and Kevin Paul DuPont, who's, yep. uh, who is a great hockey writer there in the Hall of Fame as an associate member, yep. uh, had a full page of hockey notes. And I mean, there were Red Fisher did the similar thing in Montreal and uh, my pal Strachan claims he did it in Toronto, although I don't think I read it very often. Um, <laughs> But what would happen is that I would get frustrated. Why didn't we have something like that on television? Exactly. Why couldn't we have that? Why couldn't we have that same, you know, quick hit notes of what's going on in hockey on television? We didn't be- at a at a point before I got to hockey night the second time before before I was executive producer, they they didn't really prioritize that. So when we revamped the show in '94. Uh, and we now had to program four intermissions, not two. That gave us an opportunity to say, okay, we're going to try something different. Now, th- set that story aside and add to the other story is I love CNN. Not necessarily for their content, but for their delivery. When you could sit in Atlanta in the studio and see somebody in London and somebody in Tokyo and somebody in Buenos Aires on the screen at the same time, that's magic. That is unadulterated television magic. Well, we needed to create magic for TV and for hockey too, because we're no different. We needed, we need to be able to create that. So, so the combination of being to have those, you know, little nuggets of stories plus trying to create some TV magic allowed us to create the satellite hot stove. The first hot stove was was thought to be we had to have somebody representing Eastern Canada, which is usually where Ron and Don were. So we'd have a, a guest there for 
Ron to be with. We needed someone to represent Western Canada. We hired our pal Jim Houston out of Vancouver, who is the TV voice of, uh, of, of uh, a radio voice first and then TV voice of, of the Canucks. And John Davidson, who, again, one of my best friends and had been, after I had worked with him in, in Canada at Hockey Night the first time around, he was in New York and he represented the stories that were going to happen in the United States. So that's how we built it. It was mo it was really important to me that when we were going to do this, we needed to cover not just the Toronto Maple Leafs and the Montreal Canadiens. We needed to we needed to cover the whole league. We needed to tell Western Canada that they mattered in everything we did, and we needed to tell the same thing to the Americans. So we told the whole story of the what was it a twenty four team league then a twenty seven team league then. Uh, we needed to do that, and that's how the hot stove got in, really got invented of what was going to happen in hockey, what was the inside story in hockey, and it was the chemistry between those guys. When Houston went to Sportsnet full-time, that's when we brought Al Strachan in to be one of our guys. Mike and then Milbury? We got, Mike Milbury? No, no, I was, I was gone by Milbury. I was gone by the time Milbury was there. Um, my, my, the original guys I had were guys like Jim Kelly out of Buffalo, yep. who was, who the late Jim Kelly, who was a great r reporter for the Buffalo Evening News, guys like Strack and Larry Brooks was on. We had yep. a few guys in Western Canada, Eric Dehatchek. Uh, that's what, that was our group of guys that every Saturday night they told a story. Yeah. Uh, late, later on, uh, Mike Milbury and Al Strachan had some legendary bouts uh, on the hot stove together. Yeah, but they they ruined the whole concept of the hot stove. And I mean, the guys that produced that were friends of mine because they put everybody in the same place. There's right. no magic. There's no magic in putting four guys around a desk. The magic of television and technology says that we can be in three different cities, as we are now, by the way. Yeah sitting and talking that's magic guys that's what we do we create magic love it love it so there's a great story that uh, has been told about you literally kicking the prime minister of canada out of an nhl dressing room and uh i i want you to tell the story because i have a particular connection to it i was at that game <laughs> it was game five of the Stanley Cup Finals in 1979. It was Scotty Bowman's last game ever coaching the Montreal Canadiens. Ken Dryden's last game ever in goal with the Montreal Canadiens. Jacques Lemaire's last game ever uh, playing for the Montreal Canadiens. And it was the night that they won their fourth consecutive Stanley Cup. And I remember vividly, there was a buzz in the air because there was a Canadian federal election. Uh, I believe it was the next day. And True. there was an empty seat behind the Canadian's bench. And the rumor was that the Prime Minister of Canada, Pierre Elliott Trudeau, was coming to sit and watch the game. And, and a few moments before puck drop, out he came and he went to his seat got a long standing ovation he was very popular he had he had resigned and and announced his retirement and through uh, a very odd series of circumstances ended up leading the liberal party in the subsequent election when he mm -hmm. wasn't even supposed to be there anymore he had publicly retired and walked away from it all um tell us about uh, what happened to the dressing room 
Well, so I, I was, uh, I had spent a lot of time that year in Montreal. Um, and, um, uh, my boss, Ralph Mellenby at the time, uh, we were well aware of the election being the next day. We were well aware of, uh, you know, how dramatic anything with the election in the province of Quebec as well. Probably, you know, the most polarized province at that time in our country. But the CBC uh, has rules about fairness doctrine uh, that says if you show the prime minister, you have to show the opposition leader. In, that, in this case, it was Joe Clark. Yeah. So that in a live situation, the CBC was, and we all got the mandate, that please do not show the prime minister because the conservative party of the country would then say you have to give Joe Clark the same amount of time on the on air in both English and French within a, a relatively short period of time and the election was the next day so my boss comes to me and 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 he says to me his kid I don't care what happens I don't care you're in charge of the dressing room after the game so that was a big assignment to make sure all the interviews get done. And Dick was going to be our, our uh, interviewer in the, in the dressing room. He says, but you can't let the prime minister on the air. It cannot happen. If you, if it happens, you're gone. I said, okay. Thanks, Ralph. Well, good vote of confidence there, pal. Um, so the, the game, game happens. Montreal wins, as Alan described, wins their, their fourth Stanley Cup, wins in game five. I rushed down to uh, be in charge of what's going on in the dressing room. We were allowed to go in five minutes before the end of the game, bring all the cameras in, all the wires in, all the lights in. And we set up in the old weight room at the back of the dressing room in the Montreal Forum. Um, and there's, it, it, it's, if anybody remembers it, it was the way that the players used to leave the building. So there's a back door and it was through the weight room. So we're, we're doing our post-game Stanley Cup interviews and Dick's got Larry Robinson and he's got Lafleur and he, this and that. And next thing you know, out of the corner of my eye, I see an entourage. It's not one guy. It's about six. Two CSIS operators are there. Two guys from the uh, Secret Service, our, our Canadian version of Secret Service. Uh, somebody from looks pretty official with a briefcase. And Pierre Elliott Trudeau, right there, eight feet to the left of Dick Irvin. <laughs> and Dick's doing interviews. Now, I'm not shitting bricks. God, I sound like Paul B. Snett there for a second. Um, <laughs> but, but, but what I, what I am saying is, okay, I only got one kick at this. So Dick's doing an interview with Bob Ganey at this point. And the PMO's representative walks up and he says, the prime minister just needs to walk through. I said, no, I'm sorry, can't, can't happen. The, the, the secret service guy says, prime minister's got to come through. He wants to go to the dressing room to co congratulate the players. I said, no, it can't happen. I'm sorry. Next thing you know, this guy is glaring at me. And I said, Mr. Prime Minister, you know the rules that we're under about fairness. If you're on camera, Joe Clark has to be on camera. And that's not going to happen, is it? The only way, sir, you are going to get to that dressing room is if you crawl. 
so, so they're, they, they're all in shock that I've actually said something like this to the Prime Minister. I wasn't swearing. I never swore. Um, and uh, next thing you know, I look down and there's, you know, the, the CSIS guys crawling, the PMO operatives crawling, and Prime Minister Pierre Elliott Trudeau is crawling beneath Dick Irvin and Bob Ganey. <laughs> so it, they all go through and they all get through to the room and, you know, and, and, and the prime minister celebrating with the, with the players and we go to commercial and Dick said, uh, John, yeah. was that the prime minister? <laughs> I said, I said, Oh yeah. He says, you're good, man. You're good. <laughs> so that has become a bond between Dick and I for the last, well, 1979. So what's that? 44 wow. years. Wow. Unbelievable. Wow. <laughs> Unbelievable. So, John, uh, one thing I do want to discuss with you is some of the technical technological innovations that have taken place uh, uh, over the years from glow pucks to what we see now. And and maybe talk a little bit about where you think it's going in the future. Uh, well, by the way, um the Fox tracks puck in 1996, I yep. believe it was, uh, was the greatest money Fox invested in promoting hockey. And even if you didn't like it, what it did do it was it told people in both countries that somebody was trying to help the game grow. And it was the best promotional tool the NHL and Fox had at the time. It cost, I think it cost between six and seven million dollars. Um, and it was the best six or seven million dollars to promote our game, uh, in the United States. Did I like it? No, I didn't like it, but it was great promotion wow. for the game because there was a much larger awareness of the game w when it happened. Um, you know, HD has been uh, overall people, people, people are going to laugh saying, what's HD now? Cause <laughs> it's taken for granted, you know, when Alan, when you were watching Hockey Night in Canada at 7.30 on a Saturday night in suburban Montreal, you know, the old 4 by 3 tube was the way we watched. HD has changed our game for the good, I think, better than any other sport. You know, um, if you look at the ice surface from the way we shoot it, it's a, four, it's, it's a 16 by 9 ratio. So it, it's easier to follow the puck. Uh, the pictures are crisper. Uh, you know, it, it, it has done amazing things. Just the, the transformation to HD has been remarkable for our game. And the other one behind the scenes is, um, how we, how we deliver replays, mm -hmm. how replays are put on the air. Uh, and uh, you, again, it's, you know, our guy, the guys at Fox who are brilliant, uh, the guys at Fox in the, in the, early to mid nineties, um, bought this piece of machinery out of Belgium called an EVS. And it was basically a digital server that could replay, could recall replays instantaneously, as opposed to the old days of, you know, re-racking a videotape. Uh, and it changed the way they did baseball. And it just so happened. So we, we didn't have that technology in Canada. Uh, and a friend of mine was the director on Fox Baseball at the time, a guy named Bill Webb, who has since passed away, but the great Bill Webb. One day between games one and two of the World Series, I phoned him and I said, Bill, what machine are you using there 
that gets you, uh, you, you could actually see a pitch count of five or six pitches, bing, 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 you know, curveball, slider, fastball, curveball, changeup. You could see that in, you know, nine seconds. What machine are you using? So he told me the name of the machine, and I, it, it changed the way we covered hockey when it comes to the amount of replays, the quality of replays you can put in. That's, to me, the greatest single advancement in technology of how to cover the game of hockey was the EVS. Um, one quick aside, so I, working at the CBC as a crown corporation, you know, you, despite what people think, you don't have a boatload of money. You know, there's not a, you know, you're not walking off the elevator with buckets of gold saying, I work at the CBC and we're going to spend it. Didn't work that way. So I, I went and I went to the people in charge of, of purchasing and I said, we got to buy two of these things, one for the East and one for the West. And they said, no, we can't. We have no money. We have no capital expenditures in the next 18 months. The government's frozen us. So I said, you know what? That's the silliest thing I've ever heard. This is going to help us. And it, it's cheaper to buy it in the end than it would be to rent it. They said, no, not possible. So <laughs> I went to a friend of mine. I've never told this story. This is going to get me in trouble. I went to, <laughs> I went to a friend of mine and I said, if you go buy two of these machines for about $450,000 a piece, if you go buy these two machines for $900,000, I will guarantee you two rentals a week of $3,000 for the length of the NHL season, which is 30 weeks. So you do the math. I made that man a millionaire. Wow. <laughs> Wow. I made him a millionaire wow. and we got our equipment. We had it in our budget that we could rent it. <laughs> we didn't have in our budget that we could buy it. Wow. And, and to this day, it was one of those things you look back and you're saying, God, if we could just have some foresight on how to spend money properly, it would have been much easier for us. But now yeah, my friend got rich. So that was all that mattered. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's, I was just going to say, those would pay for themselves pretty quickly, I would think, at that money. They paid for themselves. Well, here's the other thing, Adam. I did, I, I, part of the deal was I couldn't tell him what to do with his machines for the other five days of the week. I just had first call on them on Saturdays in playoffs. Wow. So next thing you know, they're on Blue Jay games. They're on CFL games. They're on... Wow. He did okay. He did okay. Smart. Good for him. <laughs> wow. Good for him. <laughs> Now, John, you touched upon it uh, a little while ago. Uh, Gary Bettman has been the commissioner of the NHL now for a long time, and many of the executives, uh, uh, top executives in the NHL, have also been there for a very mm -hmm. long time. You've worked for them. Um, how much interference comes from NHL New York, the NHL head offices, when it comes to uh, the content of the broadcasts, particularly Hockey Night in Canada throughout the 90s, uh, when, and, and when you were involved there, 80s and 90s, um, you know, Gary Bettman became commissioner in uh, 93, I believe. February 2nd, 93, yeah. Right after the 92 strike, there was a movement to replace John Ziegler and bring in a commissioner. Um, can you tell us about that? Well, um, I, I can't speak for interference in the last while. Um, 
but I, I can tell you right now, we had little or no interference at my time at Hockey Night. So we weren't getting phone calls on Monday morning. Why did you do this? Why did you do that? And in many ways, um, it was the other way around. We were much more demanding of the league than they were of us. Um, whether that was because, you know, we had been, we had, you know, we had been around a lot longer than most other people. <laughs> so that we knew where everything was buried. We knew where the skeletons were. We knew where, where it was important to find things, um, to fix things. I, just as one aside, uh, I, I started my job and I, I'll get back to the Bettman answer because I, I, I think I know where you're going. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> I do know where you're going. Um, uh, we, uh, I, I had just started the job in New York uh, as the vice president of broadcasting. Uh, Gary and I had negotiated the deal on blackberries. He was in Torino. I was in Toronto. Um, and so after, right after the Torino Olympics, I, I joined the league. And about three weeks in, I had two lawyers come to me rather sheepishly and they said, we've been trying to rewrite the broadcast rules uh, that were in, in, been in place for years and years. And, and we, we contacted the former vice president of broadcasting for the NHL, a gentleman named Joel Nixon, who really, who was supposed to be the author of the original document. And, and Joel Nixon's answer to them was, I don't know why you're talking to me. You should walk down the hall and talk to John Shannon because he wrote most of them. So, <laughs> so, so, so in the end, when my, my time at Hockey Night was, we were always pushing the envelope. We were always trying to say we need to do more. My boss at the, at the CBC, Alan Clark, was brilliant at allowing us to, to be more creative and, and try things and do different things. And that made, that was at a time when the NHL was trying to transform from being a, in many ways, a mom and pop operation to a major league, you know, and that's what Gary did. Gary, Gary made it, Gary changed it from a, a mom and pop operation that was in charge of scheduling, officiating, and very little marketing. Gary Bettman brought infrastructure uh, to the NHL and with infrastructure comes control. And the only way he works is if he feels that he has control. Uh, and so that occurred when, you know, television contracts came up, uh, whether it be with, with, uh, in Canada with the CBC, every time that there was a contract negotiation, you know, there was more control put in place for the NHL. Same thing at the, uh, in, with, with the U.S. networks, whether it be ESPN or Versus for a while or NBC. There was control put in place so that there was a, an ability to help um, steer the message that was supposed to happen on the air every night. What about the uh, what about the the broadcasters and analysts and so forth? Uh, do you think the league any any hand in um, having people uh, terminated from their job or having certain people hired? I, that's a good question. I, I, I mean, I never, even in my time with the league, and I, you know, and 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 I was quite aggressive working for Gary about trying to protect things. There were times that I would make a phone call and say, "Hey, listen, we don't like that guy. Uh, you know, we we would prefer you don't use that guy." It didn't happen often, uh, and and I think in the end, the broadcasters understood our position uh, when it came to that stuff. Uh, I. I I do think that right now in the United States, I think that if, if, 
if Gary has been unhappy or anybody in the league office has been unhappy, I think that both ESPN um, and and TNT, for instance, have picked their poison. You know, the, you know, def- who are they going to who are they going to defend? Who are they going to? Uh, if Gary says I don't like that guy, I'm gonna I want him gone. And I think the networks have both said, no, you know what? We're in charge of hiring announcers. Um, and uh, it's one of those things where. I do think that there's uh, there might be a little more behind the scenes discussion than people realize, but in the end, both networks have come out and said, "No, we're in charge of our people." So, in uh, 2013, the NHL uh, signed a historic broadca- broadcast rights agreement with uh, Rogers Sportsnet uh, for 5.2 billion dollars, 12 year mm-hmm. deal. That is going to come up in 2025. I think three more. I think it's got three years. This year and two more, Alan. So that'll be 25, 26. Right. Where do you think it goes from there? What happens next? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, And I I think the first question is, 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 will people within the league office, will the member clubs... Uh, will the Players Association, because business partners now, right? Yep. HRR is 50-50, right? Yeah. Um, will, they, will they have viewed the 12 years as a success? Um, and uh, I, I think that, you know, the $5.2 billion says it's a, it was a success. Uh, I think that there has, you know, I think there's been growing pains. When, when I was at Rogers, I think we had growing pains. Um and I think that there have been growing pains, and I think that they're, believe it or not, at nine years in, I think they finally settled into a system now that, that they might be happy with at Rogers. Um, you know, they, their commentators seem to be settled. Game coverage seems to be settled. Um, but do you want to put all of that in one basket with one partner? Does that make sense? And more importantly, are you, are, do you think you're absolutely going to be able to get $5.2 billion for the next 12 years from one person? And I, I, just, I just don't know if that's possible. I really don't know if that's possible. In, in this day and age, following the COVID situations, you know, where the money in our business is. Adam, I don't have to tell you where the, where the money in radio and television has gone, you know, in, in the linear world. It's disappeared. Disappeared in so many ways. So, yeah. so how are you going? How are you going to? How are you going to take that one basket and fill it up to the same amount without having more than one business partner? You're going to need more than one business partner. In our country, it, that means at this point you're either going to be a business partner with Rogers, with Bell and Rogers, and then who else is out there in order to come jump in and say they're interested? We see what Apple's done with MLS. Um, we've seen what Amazon, who, by the way, have a little bit of an ownership interest, or at least some of the principals do in Seattle. So there's obviously a love of the game in Seattle. Uh, Amazon has done what the, with the NFL. Is there interest there? Um, look what Apple's, Apple's now going to bid for F1 for $2 billion. Yeah. Yes. So you, you, I think you have to hope that it, it's a three or four pronged attack at, getting distribution rights for the NHL in our country between Bell, Rogers, maybe in a fill-in-the-blank, and 
uh, and our friends uh, in, in the digital digital space like Apple or Amazon. Yeah, Adam. Well, you know what, John? It, it's it's you, you mentioned the money disappearing out of what we would call linear, but your traditional television and radio yeah. audiences have disappeared. I mean, we're even seeing it in the states. There's you know American companies handing back licenses, which is something we've yeah. never seen before in like cities like New York. A lot of people, and and because I run a small network with Jesse and Steve, um, a lot of people reach out and they go, what's my way in? Five to seven years ago, I would have said, start in radio, uh, go to a small town, make a ton of mistakes, learn how to tell a story, and kind of work your way up from there. That path really no longer exists. What do you tell when the kids ask you, what do you say to them now uh, about broadcasting, online streaming, whatever you want to call it, and, and the best way in. What, what would be your advice? Well, uh, you know, it's funny. I, I'm today, I'm sitting here in an office at the College of Sports Media because uh, I actually <laughs> teach, uh, I, I teach production uh, two days a week uh, for my pal Dave Lannis. Um, and, and what I tell them is, and I'll tell you exactly what I told them when the, when the, the term started was, there are more sports fans than ever before. There are more sports than ever before. What's the only thing that's changed is that pipeline of how we're going to watch them and how we're going to play them. That's the only thing that's changed. So whether it's through conventional television, cable TV, something that hasn't been invented yet, because by mm -hmm. the way, something's going to be invented in the next 18 months that's going to change it. We know that because mm -hmm. that's what's happened in the last 10 years. Everything gets reinvented all the time. There is still a need for people to broadcast. There is still a need for people to announce. There's still a need for people to do behind the, behind the scenes. It's just not the same way it was 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. So there's going to be lots of jobs. They may not be as high paying of jobs, but they're going to be lots of jobs. And if you love this business and if you have a passion for sports, jump right in with both feet. But it's, you know, but you have to don't think with blinders on. Don't think that this is the only way, you know, I have to, you know, to your point, I'm going to start at a 5,000 watt radio station and I'm going to work my way up. You know, do it. You know, you and Steve and Jesse have done a magnificent job starting with what? How about nothing? And, yep. and working your tails off and creating something. There's nothing to stop. Right now, with technology at our disposal, nothing to stop anybody from contributing. I can run a TV network off my darn cell phone now. So why can't people create content that is compelling, exciting, fun to watch? And that's the, word, that, that, that's the message I think that we all have to give to everybody. It's no different than what you guys are trying to do even with this, this show is, you know, be entertaining, fun, and enjoyable, and maybe learn a couple of stories. Yeah. Okay. I love that. I think it's, you know what's, John, what, what's refreshing about that answer, and then, Alan, I'm going to turn it back over to you, is it's hopeful. Um, there is so much doom and gloom right now. Oh. It's so nice to hear somebody have a positive perspective on it. I, I believe in the business. You know, I, I, I believe in sports still. Um you know, uh, there are things that within the industry I don't like about how we cover things, but that, that's, those are symptoms. That's not an illness. 
Mm-hmm. We're, 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 we're going to be fine. I mean, all I have to do is understand that my wife now has about 14 apps on our television that I'm paying for. So she's still getting her television. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm a, we're still getting it. You know, be creative, build a new app, you know, get get in. Those things are going to happen and have happened. And we're doing just fine. Do you remember when Netflix was actually DVDs? Yes, sure. They've done all, yeah. they've done okay, haven't they? I used to get you know? the two in the red envelopes in the in the mailbox. <laughs> sure, <laughs> you know, I, and and not to not to do the blatant plug, not to do the blatant plug, but I'm going to do this because Walsh taught me how to be you know how to how to be a you know a good salesperson. Evolve or die, man. <laughs> you know, yeah. you, you got to change. You got to be prepared for change. You got to be open to change and still maintain some, some credibility and some creativity. That's what this is all about. It's not brain surgery. It's more common sense than that. So, John, let me ask you, because it's something that I've always wondered. You have the NHL rights now, uh, national rights split between two networks, ESPN and TNT. Why aren't you there? <laughs> Alan, I tried. I, I tried. Um, you know, the moment uh, the ESPN deal was announced, I made phone calls. The moment the TNT deal was made, I made phone calls. Um, I got very little response from either place. Um, I, I truly, I, it's, it was in the last three years, I think, it, with everything that's gone on in our lives, um, I mean, I, I'm, I'll, I'll survive anything. You know, mm-hmm. I, I'm like a cockroach, you know, that you can't kill me. <laughs> but um, n- in my opinion, neither network had the courtesy to give me a chance. Hmm. And, it, and it, it, it was disappointing. I mean, I, whether I, you know, whether I was too old, uh, whether I was the fact that I was Canadian, I, I, I don't know. I understand. And, and, you know, I understand this game. I understand the television business. I think better than anybody else on this continent when it comes to this game of hockey. When it comes to putting the puck in the net and telling stories. And I just wish that I had been given an opportunity to talk to them formally uh, to make it happen. Because I, I do think I could have made, I think TNT has been fine. But I do think I could have made ESPN better. And I probably could have helped TNT at the same time. I just don't know why they wouldn't have come to you. And and said, John, whether it's behind the camera or in no, front of the camera, I wouldn't, I, I, would, I wouldn't have been in front of the camera. I, I was not. I, I'm, I would. I tell you what. I'm not good enough for me to hire me. Okay. <laughs> well, I don't. I don't. I don't agree with that. But well, no, that's I'll, fine. But but but, but uh, you know, I I think that there, I think that I, quite honestly, I think people are afraid of me. I think people will say, oh, well, shit, we don't want him around. He'll tell us the truth. Yep. You know, and, and, you know, we don't want him around. I, I truly think that that was the case. And I think that that was probably the word of mouth. You don't want Shannon around because he's going to tell us how to run our network. And I would say, no, I'm not going to try to tell you how you run your network, but I am going to try to tell you how to put hockey on your network. Exactly. Hmm. Exactly. And, and ESPN, for all their expertise, had been out of the game for a long time. And they were literally starting up from from scratch, almost from mm. scratch, with all due respect to the few people who were there 
who who had any coverage of hockey? Well, um, I, I can't speak for those people that are there now uh, at either place, um, but I truly believe that if, for the hockey fan in the United States, I think there's a real need for someone to walk into any network that has it at any time and say, I own this property. I will take personal responsibility for this property. I want it to be the best it can be. And I will do it 24-7, 365 for the seven years of the contract. Hmm. That's all. I don't think that's asking too much. John, you uh, are famous for stalking your television shows, uh, your, your Hockey Night in Canada episodes with outspoken people. There was no... Uh, when you watch Satellite Hot Stove, when you watch Coach's Corner, there was really not a, um, there wasn't, pe- nobody was on there going, ah, I wonder what he thinks. Uh, everybody had a very <laughs> defined opinion. Alan Walsh, we're going to talk about him as if uh, he's not here, has a pretty defined opinion. What do you think about yeah. his outspokenness? Obviously, you guys have known each other for years, but he's made front page hockey news with some of the tweets and some of the comments. And I've always wondered how that struck you. Well, here, here's, you know, here's the thing about Alan. I, I you know, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a centrist. Yeah. I don't think Alan's a centrist. Um, but I'd want Alan in my foxhole. You know, I, 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 you know th- th- there's, a, there's a simple word that I have lived my career by. And you talk to anybody that I have been around, and that's loyalty. Loyalty means everything. And when you deal with Alan Walsh, you're dealing with loyalty. And I don't think that there's any better description of what a good friendship is all about than loyalty. You know, I, and, and, and I'm more than happy to talk about Alan because he's not here. But for <laughs> instance, my, my, relationship, my relationship with Don Cherry over the years, um, I did not agree with a lot of Don Cherry did, but you know what? We work together and I'm, I'm with him. I will fight for his right to have an opinion. I may not agree with it. I may, may dislike it, but you know, there was a loyalty factor and that's what being on a team is all about. What Alan has done with all his clients, you know, and he and I have talked about this and I, you know, when, when, you know, when Flower is doing what he's doing, you know, when some of the other guys from the Czech Republic are doing what they're doing. <laughs> they are. So I just Czech picked Republic. out, it's out of the blue, the Czech Republic. Always, always the Czech Republic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, why that country, John? I can't imagine. <laughs> I mean, there is a loyalty to these guys. You know, I, I, I remember, you know, Alan, I think the best example of this is, is um, David Perron. You know, David Perron to me, uh, who at, there were times I didn't think he was as good a hockey player as he turned out to be. Alan kept telling me he was a better player than I thought he was. But then when David went through his concussion issues in St. Louis, who was his, his best friend? Who was his biggest ally in all of this? And that was Alan. And that loyalty and that friendship and that, you know, that camaraderie, you cannot... You cannot get rid of that. You cannot measure that. And that's why I think Alan has the position in our business that he has. 
It's that loyalty and the people that give him that license to do it. I think it's very important to Alan's success. Do you, do you think that's fair, Alan? I, I think it's fair. Uh, I've always approached it like uh, we're a team. The relationship between me and, and my clients. And uh, I've always said, I'm going to give you options and I'm going to give you the best possible advice I'm going to give you. And uh, you're going to make decisions and I'm going to listen carefully to your decisions. And, and then if you need a guy, whether it was the advice that I gave or not, to grab an army helmet and a rifle and head out to the front lines, I'm your guy. Or a sword. <laughs> or a... Oh, did I say that out loud? Sorry. Sorry. I couldn't. I could, you, you open the barn doors wide. John, you're I in trouble. Resist. You're in trouble, John. <laughs> you just made Adam's whole week right now. <laughs> Uh, you know what, John? To, to back that that point, I, I don't think we've ever told this story on the on the sh on the show. But um, you know, the way that this show came together was essentially I was like um, uh, a guy that just really wanted to ask Alan out. I was working on him for months to get to to do this show, and I remember I got a phone call from him, and I was at my wife's cottage, and uh, and and he goes, Alan, Adam, uh, there's something you need to know about me. When I, uh, when I say I'm on your team, I'm on your team, and I'm on your team forever. I believe, and he said, I, I, I believe wholeheartedly that if you're going to pick a side and you're going to be on that team, you're on that team. Uh, he said, so I want to work with you on this. And I remember going, like, in, just screaming, but with no voice, like, yes. And, uh, and then he followed that up with, but, you know, I expect the same. And, uh, and I, I think in my experience, as, as you kind of pointed out, I don't think you could find a more fiercely lawyer, loyal, well, fierce lawyer, I'm sure, but fiercely loyal <laughs> person, um, to work with. Uh, and, you know, listen, he gave our little network, which was nothing at the time, a shot when he didn't have to. And, uh, and so I, I, to back up that, it just made me think of that story. Um, he kind of scared me in the moment, but also it was a, it was an inspiring call. Oh, well, listen, I, 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 uh, I will tell you right now, Adam, that uh, I was one, I'm the type of guy that if I need to know somebody, I'll just pick up the phone. So I got to know Alan one way. I said, uh, hi, I'm John Shannon. Mm -hmm. um, we have to have dinner. Oh. And, and uh, you're, yep. you're, you're going you're gonna to be in Toronto at the Combine. I live out there. We picked a restaurant in the West End. And we sat and had dinner, and it was supposed to be about an hour and a half dinner. I think it turned out to be five. Oh, yeah, yeah, the best. It was. And it by was, the way, by the way, Adam, I picked up the check. Oh, okay. yeah. <laughs> Alan was kind enough to do, to pick it up for us when we had no, we had no money. <laughs> so yeah. well, 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 John, we fought over the check, and and you won. Yeah, because uh, it was my restaurant. But, it was yeah, my place. My place. It, you know, and I it was. It. And and I'll tell you this. When, when people say to me, you know, you, you have some memorable nights and some memorable, um, timed conversations and things that, uh, really are, are, are meaningful. And, and you can go through days where you're going through a lot of your daily, you know, 
you know, you got ups, you got downs, but you don't have a meaningful interaction. I remember that dinner, John, and that conversation and how, you know, we were both very engrossed in what we were talking about. And, and you gave me um, a lot of unsolicited advice as and, I want uh, to do most of the and, time, and, Adam. And, and, <laughs> and, and, and I appreciated it. And I, I came away from that meeting and I was like, this guy, John Shannon, I want to be one of my friends for the rest of my life. And, and you have that eff- effect on people. Um, but, y- you know, you made a point of like, no, I, I, I want to have dinner with you. And, yeah. and, and we sat down together and it was, it was like five hours and we're closing the place up and people are like, are these two guys ever going to stop talking and get the hell out of here? It's, it's really the only, again, I, 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 I think there's lots of people that scares. It's really the only way I know how to get to know somebody is you, you know, pick up the phone and say, we've got to talk. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. I was, I was, I was taught that by my, my mom and dad was, you know, look people straight in the eye, shake their hand and say, let's go. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, uh, it's, it, it, in my opinion, it's put me in good stead for most of the places I've worked. Mm-hmm. So really one last co- uh, question that I have for you before um, uh, we'll let you go. You've been very, very generous uh, with your time. Uh, how is Bob McCown doing? And, and what has it been like? Really, like growing up, it was Johnny Carson and Ed McMahon. Um, you know, Bob McCown has been the Johnny Carson of uh, sports for mm-hmm. so many years to so many people. And you've been there by his side as, as his co-host, but a lot more than that, because y- you've helped Bob become Bob. And uh, you guys have incredible on-air chemistry. Uh, how's he doing? And 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 can you please send him our love and our regards? Uh, well, he, uh, you will do that. I will do that for you. Um, you've done it just by saying what you said, because I'll make sure he sees this. And then he'll give me shit for talking so much about myself. <laughs> um, you know, uh, I, I have, I've had the great pleasure of, in my opinion, working with the greatest sports broadcasters in, in, in our country. Uh, you know, I morphed from Dave Hodge to Ron McLean to Bob McCowan. Um, and, and have worked closely with all three and view all three as, as, as great friends still. Uh, Bob is an unbelievable communicator. Bob knows what makes people tick and that's what makes him so special as a broadcaster and he's really efficient with his words which is something that not many people are these days and he listens to answers in order to elicit the next question but he's going through a tough time you know he's had three strokes uh over the last uh, five or six months uh, the last one uh, he had while he was in hospital after he checked himself in Following our interview with Bruce Boudreau on June 17th, um, he has learned to walk again. He has learned to speak again. He does come on our show twice a week, Monday and Friday, normally for four or five minutes, just to give an update and more, more give an update, maybe get an opinion or two out there, but also to tell people that you can fight through these things. 
that you can be a difference maker if you're having a stroke and you, if you had a stroke and you've had problems, you know, Bob's fighting through it too. And it happens to all of us. So he, he's doing all right. He's, he's, you know, I would tell you he's between 60 and 70% of being Bob. He got mad at me last week, so I know he's getting closer to being uh, 100%. You know, he's getting a little more critical, which is a good thing. Uh, but my hope is that we have Bob back in his chair uh, by the end of the calendar year, and then we'll be back to normal, and it won't be normal until he is. Well, that would be amazing. Yeah, that would be I've amazing. De devoted every everyday listener uh, for, for many, many years. So it's you, so you were a first-time caller. No, first yeah, time I, I never had long the balls time to call Bob. <laughs> <laughs> I was too afraid. <laughs> He'd have torn me up, John. He'd have torn me up. <laughs> oh, I'm not sure about that, Adam. You guys have done a hell of a job with your careers. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. Well, this is this has been. I mean, I was telling Alan, and I was saying before the time I the first time I met John Shannon was uh, at Mario Lemieux's. Uh, not Mario Lemieux, uh, Ty Domi's book launch. I can see I why there. you could confuse Mario Lemieux and Ty. So. Well, you know, very similar first, but Mario was there. Um, yes, he but, was. Uh, but yeah, I, I sat, Alan, I sat with John and Curtis Joseph and listened to them trade stories all night. It was a pretty yeah. uh, wow. pretty spectacular evening for a 25-year-old, I think. I was I was blown away. So I was looking forward to this interview. Well, I oh, tell you, it's awesome. been a, been a treat for me. Uh, you know, I, uh, and I, as I've told Alan many times, anything he wants, I'll do. So happy to do it. Well, listen, uh, John, thank you so much for being so generous with your time and coming on today and uh, telling some amazing stories. Uh, we really appreciate it. And the name of the book. If you want to read the greatest hockey book ever written, no, no. sorry if I'm uh, embarrassing you, John, but it really is an incredible, incredible book. Uh, I've I've read it three or four times now. Uh, I keep going back to some of the amazing stories in there. Um, I, I love some of the uh, anecdotes about some of the people like Glenn Sather and so forth. But the uh, name of the book is Evolve or die hard won lessons of a hockey life. And it truly is John Shannon. You've lived a hockey life. Thank you so much for coming on and, uh, and we'll see you soon. A hockey life. Not bad for a guy who can't skate. What do you think? <laughs> Not bad at all. <laughs> Not bad at all. This has been Agent Provocateur with Alan Walsh and Adam Wild. Follow Alan Walsh on Twitter at Walsh A. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts by searching Agent Provocateur and hitting the subscribe button. YouTube.com slash SDPN.